Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 53. Today on the show, I have Aaron Davis, sports performance and health coach with Train, Adapt, Evolve. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome back to episode 53 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have Aaron Davis. Uh, Really excited to bring this episode to you guys. Aaron is a coach who is probably not the most well-known guy. if you go around social media, if you kick around social media, which I try not to do very much, I have a, a rescue time app. So it like, it tells me at the end of the week, how much time I set my goal for how little time I wanted to spend. And if it tells me if I hit it or not, and I'm always disappointed if, if I like, I left Facebook open or something, or I was talking to somebody on Facebook and not actually going through or whatever. But anyways, I digress. Um, Aaron is not a guy who spends a lot of time in self-promotion. He spends time in the trenches honing his craft and working those skills of a good coach and a technician. And uh, so he's Aaron had uh, many years of experience as a track coach. He has an intimate understanding of the human body, health, and physiology. And he also is, and this is actually how I first uh, found or heard of Aaron, uh, is through his work now with Train Adapt Evolve based out of uh, Austin, Texas. And it was on he, how he's using technology to help determine basically how athletes respond to tempo training or uh, speed endurance training. And that was always kind of a point that I had always kind of wondered, well, why why do some athletes seem to do well with, with all this running in the program? And some coaches, on the other hand, seem to completely throw any sort of tempo or speed endurance out of the program. And so Aaron, using the blood oxygenation has found uh, some really great insight into individual athletic response to these things and not only speed or speed endurance on the track or in conditioning but also in the weight room and using uh, using blood oxygenation throughout rep ranges to kind of see how that set is hitting an athlete in terms of their metabolic response so Uh, Really great stuff there. That's not all we're going to talk about. We're also going to get into a lot of really interesting ideas on things like muscle length tension. What does that mean for speed? What does it mean for training? What does it mean for some of the angles you might be hitting in the weight room on on particular lifts? We're going to get into a little bit on uh, fast twitch hypertrophy. We are kind of on the little vibe of physiology 
and talking about how blood oxygen affects athletes. So Aaron's going to go uh, into a little bit about uh, how uh, fast twitch hypertrophy, hypertrophy in general, how max strength and hypertrophy are interrelated in a training program and training cycle, and a lot more great stuff along those lines. Uh, overall, an amazing episode. And uh, Aaron is just such a smart guy doing great work. And it's stuff that's outside the box. It's not stuff that you see every day or hear are continually hearing people kind of talk about and how you see things and topics repeat themselves over and over again. Uh, this is fresh and great stuff. And so with that said, I'm really excited to have Aaron on the show. Let's get on to it. Episode 53 with Aaron Davis. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool, man. Uh, so to get things all kicked off, uh, could you give us a little background? Uh, where where have you been in the world of uh, sports performance, track and field technology, and where are you now? Yeah, um, well, grew up a track and field athlete from pretty much grade school on up. Uh, went to Adams State for for college for um, to run. Was an 800 meter runner there. Got to learn a lot from kind of the Joe V Hill, um, you know, coaching tree with Damon Martin there. He's kind of put his own spin on it. And then uh, from there, jumped over to um, Fort Hayes State University and um, got to learn sprint training, uh, which was very Charlie Francis-esque. And then uh, from there, jumped into being a head coach at a small private school in, in Kansas and coached all the events until I finally got to hire some assistants and um, did that for three years. And then picked up everything and moved down to Austin, Texas. So, yeah, I've been here. Uh, got jumped into kind of the CrossFit sports performance private world down here. And then from there, it's now trained at Devolve for the last three years. Yeah, sounds good. It's, uh, it's always good to talk to people who have been you know, not only in track and field, but also are doing human performance-based uh, things outside of that, too. And, and the, the link between the two worlds is always really interesting to me. Uh, the first question I had for you probably is uh, a very speed and track type of question, but I suppose it could really have implications for anything. But that's what are your thoughts on uh, the muscle length tension relationships, uh, say for sprinting and distance running, but also maybe from what we're seeing in the weight room and strength training? Yeah, I think um, probably the easiest thing to, to look at it when we think of like length tension relationships is probably in the weight room, um, whether it's when we see people do you know, pretty close to one RM squats, uh, you start seeing sticking points, right? Where, where the athletes weak, sometimes it might be at the very bottom. Sometimes it might be past 90. Um, and in those ranges, you can find weaknesses. Now, how can that pop up in athletics? Well, even when we do jump protocols to test, um, you know, um, some of our jumps, if we look at it and see how, how the athlete winds up, right? Like, do they squat really low? Do they have more of a hip hinge, right? And things like that of seeing, okay, now does that movement strategy, does it correlate or is it optimal for, you know, what they do as an athlete? You know, I would say a 400-meter athlete, and this is just one that I have at the top of my head, um, granted acceleration is important, but I remember testing him and he would just go to these deep knee angles and almost ass to grass to do a vertical jump, right? And yeah, he likes to have his foot on his ground in acceleration, but most of the time his race is done upright running, right? And so there were some issues in link tension relationships, um, you know, that we we obviously needed to work on. So yeah, that's probably, that's probably the simplest explanation I would say. 
with with that 400 runner when uh so if i i feel like i've seen athletes who do that too when he was upright running then was he kind of real deep in his knee flexion did that show up in his running at all too i mean different skills but the muscles being the same then yeah i would say like just visually watching him it's very smooth he didn't have that very kind of bouncy you know so in other words it seemed like his hips sit a little bit lower didn't have much like hip hip raise on the opposite side in stance uh or when he's coming off of stance and so um and then we think about it from and he was a 400 hurdler when he comes off the hurdle right there's obviously going to be impact there he always usually had well early on he'd always have like hamstring and like low back issues right and so obviously in my head it's like okay we got to improve these um you know the the tension in certain ranges right to to improve one stiffness at, at, at max velocity and then um you know, just efficiency when it comes to turtling, you know? Yeah. So what are some uh, strategies then? So like if somebody is, is um, not very strong or tense in those shorter ranges of motion and might need that, that for their sport, what are some corrective or what are some prescriptions that you might be giving in, in light of that? Uh, I think some intensive isometrics are usually um, kind of my go-to or eccentrics uh, in certain ranges. Um, I think that's been, even in literature, it's been kind of the thing that I think that to change certain link tension or force, uh, you know, tension relationships. Um, and so, and that could just be anywhere from, you know, you can go down to even the Caldeet stuff with the isometrics and those, those, those time periods. You can, um, you know, even um, loading up a rack pull, right? And just having them pull at, at those, um, at those ranges for, you know, six to 10 seconds. Um, eccentrics where you have a heavy eccentric load only down to maybe a quarter squat depth. I mean, things like that, um, you know, kind of always been my go-to. Yeah. Interesting. I've heard, um, it was on, I think a couple podcasts, both Pacey and Historica, Alex Natera from Spire Academy is doing, uh, with sprinters, like similar, uh, heavy resisted, um, isometrics in sprint positions. So like yeah. it's a force plate. Uh, so it'd be kind of a similar world. Yeah. Same, same kind of concept then, huh? Yep. Yep. Definitely. Um, and yeah, and I think there's also probably like a, a motor learning component too. I mean, if they're going to be in these positions, it's kind of maybe our job too, just to expose them to those positions with more variability. Right. And not just in, uh, you know, what they see in their sport, but also maybe in the weight room as well. That's a cool way of thinking about it too. Like, uh, variability. I'm starting to hear that more and more. Uh, can you actually go into that just a little bit and, and exposing people in variability in the similar positions and kind of how that all works together to make a faster or uh, stronger athlete? Yeah. Well, if you think of variability in, in different positions, we can, uh, I mean, we can take certain joint angles and be unilateral, bilateral, right? We can kind of go into the Bosch stuff in the sense of maybe we're trying to do some kind of rotary maybe um, a rotary uh, RDL into a step up, right? Um, where you're looking at certain ranges and motions of the hip. Um, you can think of it as, you know, even in your plyometrics, you know, are we landing with certain ranges of motions of the hip and the knee? Um, then are we taking those same range of motions and are we loading it up with heavy weight? And then are we loading it up with lightweight that can move fast? Right. And then can we just challenge it in different ways and then, you know, move it around in the program where the body's always seeing it 
and then it becomes accustomed to it. And then, and then that variability usually is born efficiency, right? Hopefully, uh, if, if you do it right. Now, the problem when people talk about this is that I think coaches think that this needs to be the only thing in the program. And they're like, well, how are my athletes supposed to get strong? Or I think there comes times in programming where we can maybe have this as maybe a tertiary, you know, of importance. And then other times when maybe it's closer to competition where it is very important and it might need to be more of a focus. So I think the big thing is, is when, when I talk about this stuff, uh, is that it's looking at it as a blend rather than absolutes. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was just thinking kind of as you were talking about um, there's there's been some good articles written too on half squats and quarter squats and, and for athletes. And and I believe you work with CrossFit athletes as well, right? Or at least. Yeah, uh, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was pretty, I was almost like 99% sure. Um, but I imagine I, those athletes, I was just thinking like I've, if I watch those athletes do a vertical jump, they bend like, they go like all the way in the hole to do it oftentimes. I mean, that's probably just the result of doing all those thrusters and working. I mean, they never do, I mean, I guess box jumps, but the majority of what they do is just high rep in the bucket stuff. So is that kind of an example of the, the longer length tension showing up then there? Yeah, well, the good CrossFitters, you'll see uh, the muscle tone, okay, let's put it this way, the good CrossFitters, you'll see muscle tone maybe not being as like a 100-meter sprinter, right? So when you have them on the table and you're doing anything, uh, when it comes to just soft tissue stuff, you'll kind of feel that the good ones, um, it's almost like their tone is very butter-like, and they can take a beating, but to survive what they do day in and day out, you kind of need that quality. The only problem with that is, is that when they do any kind of elastic type stuff, they have no extra free energy. It's just like all mechanical, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's fun when you you give a basketball in their hand and you try to tell them to like play ball, and it's it's very much like uh, you know seeing a I don't know like a square just jump and then not really getting anywhere, right? There's no fluidity or there's no you know beauty of what we probably in the track world like to visually see, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. The the one um, one CrossFitter I had seen, um, she had like a like a, a twenty seven inch standing vertical on a vertex, maybe twenty eight. But then she couldn't get any higher with a step or anything. Like there was no elastic uh, component to it. It was just pure yeah. uh, out of the bucket, uh, just yeah. like kind of like you're doing a thruster, or a clean uh, clean catch uh, movement. And so as yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to me just the different movement types and length tensions there. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 allowed us to um, not profile athletes, but when you look at a broad spectrum of athletes, it kind of allows you to see like, oh, what athletes need what, and when to discard maybe some of the bullshit, you know, that that kind of comes along with people's training history, you know. Yeah. So for a track athletes, let's say uh, say four hundred runners or athletes who don't have much of an acceleration phase or or where that's not it's not the most important thing how likely are you to be utilizing or recommending a, a deep squat exercise or something at higher tension? Or is that something you do early in the season or would you just not even really yeah. look at it? Say like, you always want the ability, right? Like when we think of mobility early in the season, you always want the ability to, um, you know, squat deep. And uh, I think a lot of that like full range uh, motion type stuff or exercises can definitely be done early on. Um, and, Maybe when it gets closer to the competition, now you're looking at things more of that quarter squat, for sure. 
yeah yeah i like that uh i mean it's just it just makes good sense and uh, i think those are just really good it's as we see it almost like gives us more of a a lens a good lens as we see all these exercises and a, a almost a better way by which to kind of judge the quality of some of these some of these things uh do you for for just strength training though say uh, um absent of speed like if you're working with someone who's just trying to improve their squat then and so it, within that sticking point just using like isometrics then or or uh and yeah. uh isometrics and then like if it's you know past 90 i think accommodated resistance with bands obviously work you know well because it adds tension to the very top and so now they have to kind of have tension all the way through the squat um that's always good and then just yeah pretty much iso holds it's amazing with some like even olympic weightlifters i've worked with they they um they try to use it's almost like they're bouncing off their ligaments in the bottom right all the time and so one of my big kind of keys with helping them out a lot of times is uh making them stop right at 90 and still try to lift heavy uh and kind of look at that as like a one rm because a lot of times when we improve that, the catch and, and everything else, it's, it's a lot safer and we can actually maybe add, um, well, the goal is with that is to add maybe a couple more years or a couple more, uh, you know, weeks of uh, healthy training. Yeah, that's, I've, I think I, I had heard or seen uh, somebody, it was probably you right about that at, at some point uh, with those, those athletes. And you always kind of wonder, you talk about the ligaments as guardrails and how many times you're going to run into the guardrails before <laughs> yeah. everything starts to fall apart with catching it like that. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, the, I mean, here, because we're, we kind of this CrossFit Olympic weightlifting blend a lot of the times, that's how most people get into the sport. Uh, a lot of times it's this very old mentality of just like, well, we're just going to find every which way to lift it, right? I've seen people take knees and try to, you know, lunge their way out of bottom position. So um, I think uh, owning and learning certain positions and having strength in certain positions, you know, can only do good for sure. Yeah, that's good stuff, Aaron. Uh, let's, uh, I'm going to move on to the next question and sure. one that I know uh, you have a really unique uh, and, and just really interesting uh, experience in and that's uh, your thoughts on uh, muscle oxygenation occlusion and um, then speed training and weight training so maybe let's just start with the tempo your thoughts on the the occlusion and tempo and how you use moxie and maybe we can branch out from there a little bit yeah so um, you know using the moxie monitors with the mox uh, with the muscle oxygenation uh, what we're looking at with that is just percent of oxygen in the you know in the blood within the muscle, right? Now, when athletes do any type of work, oxygen will decrease immediately, okay? And that might fly in the face of some, you know, anaerobic, aerobic stuff, but you use O2 immediately, okay? Um, and then with that too, with the monitors, it can obviously show uh, blood flow trends. So if somebody occludes, just like if you hold, say, the very end of a hose, you're going to have buildup on the other side of the hose, right? And so buildup of, of, of uh, fluid. And so you can actually see that very much in the moxie, right? And so when we see blood flow trends go up, we know that there's usually a venous occlusion or you can have an arterial occlusion where you might see a little up from venous occlusion and then you can see uh, maybe a plateau, right? That's when somebody clamps the end of the hose and the beginning of the hose, right? Where blood flow just kind of ceases and it plateaus. Now, it gets interesting when you see these trends and relating it to whatever their sport is, right? So 
if you have a marathoner who occludes at race pace, you can imagine that they're not going to be very good marathoners, right? They're, they're going to be, um, you know, uh, probably walking. Um, you know, where if we were looking at, say, a sprinter who occludes because they create so much muscular tension and so much power that they actually occlude the artery, right? The muscle compresses upon the artery. Um, then that might be a 100-meter sprinter, right? And then do you have to worry about that in 100-meter sprinting? Probably not. In 10 seconds, I know he can get from point A to point B. I'm not too worried about it. Now, it gets interesting when we think of the middle distances or the long sprints with 400 800. Now, if you have an occlusion with a 400-meter athlete, what, what are you going to have, right? Chances are uh, the latter part of the race is maybe not going to look so good, and it's always going to be a struggle. And no matter what you really do, in some certain uh, instances, if we think of it from maybe an old paradigm, um, you might not be able to improve it, right? And so it's all these things where it's just like we want to find these trends of what these athletes do, and then how can we arrange training to either affect the trends or to work around them? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's that's interesting stuff, especially I, I know a lot of listeners uh, for this podcast are especially the speed and power persu- persuasion. Uh, so when you have uh, like that 100 meter sprinter or let's say a 200 to 400 person and they are they occlude a lot, like they have a lot of oxygen in their blood or they don't um, because their muscles contract really hard and kind of squeeze it out. What are some what are some directions you might take their training on account of that? Well, I think when it comes to that tempo question, we have to think of, um, you know, what kind of stress reaction are we creating with tempo work if they're occluding all the time, right? So if you occlude, that means while you're doing work, you're not getting the free, fresh blood into the muscle, right? You're only using whatever you came in with, right? And so chances are you're going to deplete that O2 from the muscle, right, really fast. And... The rest of it might be just this kind of very anaerobic, um, you know, uh, compensation to try to deal with the work. Now, when that happens, that's going to become a, maybe a more of a stress from one, the heart, because when you have an occlusion, what does the heart want to do? He wants to get blood into that system, right? So he thinks if he can alter the pressure of contraction of the heart, right, he can push through that occlusion, that blockade. Um, but when we're doing this, especially in the 200, 400 meter runners with the extensive tempo, you're now maybe creating a stress reaction that maybe you can't handle that's going to affect things later on, right? Um, you know, using Omega Wave, we can kind of monitor this, right, in the sense of like cardiac stuff, um, in the sense of like cardiac um, recovery. Um, and there is no doubt that when I was overdosing, you know, extensive tempo um, and not to the athlete, individualizing it to the athlete, we were having some really bad HRV trends and everything else like that. Now, does that matter if he runs fast? No, but does it matter in a year training span? Yes, right, in the sense of keeping him healthy and allowing more quality training happen the next day. So I think to, to look at this and just kind of sum up that point is that we maybe need to look at these things as like how can we get in and out without causing that much damage? How can we get in? And get exactly what we need, and then get out before you know. It's almost like robbing a house, right? Before we get caught, and that's kind of how I look at it when we look at using the Moxie for for sprinters. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It definitely changes a lot of the way that you know, we look at training and response. So I think it's it's easy to look at programs where you know, it's like uh, maybe like a really like a 400 meter program or, or a conditioning program where there's just a ton of running and tempo in, and you look at those athletes that do well off it. And, and I guess in light of that, it's easier to see how they tolerated it versus someone who would just blow up and have to go to another program or something like that. And, and, yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we have to think about it too, is that like, what it's like, it's always interesting. Like, well, what, what differs internal physiology? Like what, what drives those 400 meter runners? Why can they handle it? Are they just having like a compression of the muscle? And so now they can handle that work and now they have fresh blood going in while they're working or are they occluding and not, right? I would say that those fundamental kind of internal physiology markers are going to be things that are going to drive whether somebody does it well on a program with high extensive tempo and those that don't. Yeah, what are you seeing with that stuff uh, in the weight room? Like if you're either from A, a complementary perspective, like if you're prescribing the weight room for a speed athlete or B, uh, like a CrossFit or a strength athlete, is there implications that would be in the weight room as well or yeah, not as much? I mean, yeah, I would say you look at the trends again, right? So with maybe a speed and power athlete, if we know that we are in a, a max strength phase um, and we really want to nail it for the two weeks we're on that cycle or however long, um, and we usually, you know, most of the time you're coming back from the track into the weight room, right? So you've already done the track stuff. And usually with most coaches put things in themes. And so that means you've already went to that neural drive early on, right? Now we're asking to some, you know, uh, to, to bring it up again, right? In this, in the weight room. And so how can we use the moxie to um, see if we're getting good contraction? Well, if they're trend in the weight room, say if they're above, you know, 85% is an occlusion. And then all of a sudden that day they're on the weight and they're like, man, it, it feels heavy. And I, and then I don't see an occlusion. It's almost like you have a peripheral monitor on that muscle to see, Oh, maybe we're in our recruitments, not as good. And so that begs the question. Now, do we do that workout or do we switch it up? Maybe you switch it up and you wait to the next time where he can actually create that tension, right? That you need because that means chances are that he's recruiting like he needs to. And then, then we need to do the, that max strength session. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. And that's just with the speed. Now with a regular strength athlete or in periods of like, say, hypertrophy, if we think of the three ways muscles grow, right? It's muscle tension, um, well, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. It's kind of nice having the moxie because you can kind of really see, one, the tension like we just talked about. Metabolic stress um, would be if we can desaturate O2, right? Are we creating a desaturated situation? So if somebody desaturates at 10 reps at a certain weight, and we know that that's the bottom line, then maybe they need to hit 10 reps. But what if you prescribe eight? Now they're not completely getting the metabolic stress that you could. And so it's just another way of monitoring in the weight room on, on kind of both spectrums. Yeah, one interesting thing I noticed, uh, and I like I like the answer to that question. I I, I it kind of makes me think of something I've seen with uh, some of my swim group uh, this last year. I I was experimenting with a little bit of one by twenty style weight training for uh, that group as they transitioned from short course to long course, and something I noticed is 
some of the athletes like maybe i would say of the of the 25 about maybe five who who had always kind of not really made gains in the weight room and and, and the tran the transferability of this the water obviously swimming is always <laughs> a little up in the air in some situations but um i had especially distance guys like distance swimmers who had not gained a pound of muscle in the weight room before doing like kind of triphasic type stuff we do one by 20 and all of a sudden i got guys putting on five eight pounds of muscle who hadn't moved the needle at all before uh, so yeah. and i i kind of had felt like yeah that there there must have been something that they were not getting in the prior train even though we did a higher volume like the the single set never reached a certain barometer point yeah it's it's really hard i think with with like kind of like the with athletes that maybe have a really good delivery system in the sense of heart respiratory um because they're used to always over delivering in one of the, whatever they do now you put them in a weight room and you you try to have them do one by 20 it's probably going to probably going to cause that metabolic stress Right. And so even from when it comes from like endurance athletes and stuff like that, um, one of the hardest things uh, is to try to teach them to desaturate. Right. And it's stuff that what you just said, like that one by 20 will 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 probably elicit that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. It was interesting to me. I think that that's just it's really cool to be able to start to really dial in some of the adaptations to in the weight room that's not just I mean we, we talk about especially speed and strength and conditioning a lot from just a neural perspective it's nice to get outside of that to see uh, why some of these things are happening and for sure yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me um, so uh, moving moving on uh, to the next kind of series of questions and so talking about training effects uh, synergistically a little bit like uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, do, and how, how max strength, uh, speed, and hypertrophy all fit together in athletic development. Uh, like what we were talking about, the physiological with the muscle. Uh, how does that fit together with max strength and then building speed strength? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think they all kind of synergistically work together. I think the best coaches um, usually have them all playing at the same time. Um, and maybe just overemphasizing one or the other. I, uh, you know, even working with some bodybuilders, it's interesting. Uh, when they come to me, they're always sometimes they're like, "Well, I just feel like I've hit a rut." But when you in, introduce some uh, maybe you know strength speed stuff or speed strength uh, work, and get this more neural recruitment going on, then all of a sudden maybe we're increasing the recruitment pool. That they can now hypertrophy. Where before they were just always doing the same old, you know, you know, maybe um, you know four by tens or you know whatever the standard bodybuilding stuff is. But they're not really hitting that neural recruitment so far, you know. Or they're training so hard on the hypertrophy side that they're downgrading the neural drive, anyways. And so I think there's always a blend. And I think you know in certain phases of any athlete, uh, you know, there always needs to be kind of a balance of that. Now depending on where you are in a season. Uh, depends on the emphasis, but I think generally uh, all the greats usually have them all going at the same time, you know, in, in some some form or fashion. Interesting. That kind of brings me back a little bit to uh, some of the DB Hammer Innosport type ideas, like of uh, yeah, neural drive. Like the more motor units you access, the more you can hypertrophy, and then it, it goes in a cycle. Like and then the yeah. the high threshold units get bigger, and then you can 
kind of utilize those and that is it that's interesting you mentioned i know a lot of it's so so powerful for the course now to have the, the hypertrophy phase even for pure speed athletes in many cases yeah uh so i mean what uh by by so you're basically saying by having it all kind of in the system at one time or 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 in a shorter time frame you're making sure you don't get like too far down like you said in hypertrophy if you go for too long you'll reduce neural drive and so kind of by doing that you'd make sure you don't go too far down that rabbit hole before you get to yeah. recruitment again yeah so you know even with like sprint athletes i think we see it more of like yeah hypertrophy phase is good right but with sprint athletes if it's going to do too much where it's going to degrade coordination and neural drive on the stuff we do on the track right granted some coaches would be like well we don't need to well in my head it's like well no we need to use all the time we have to get good at the specifics and so um like i said before it always comes down to like what's the best biggest bang for our buck and how can we introduce these different variables to elicit kind of these micro adaptations along the way you know yeah yeah that's i think that's what it's all about too is just kind of that the micro scale and playing out that micro scale instead of the the big year plan that looks cool in a book but doesn't actually hypertrophy for like eight to ten weeks and then you know yeah uh yeah i think it i think we fall short and, and we have fallen short uh in the past as probably coaches doing that for sure aaron could you talk a little bit about uh your ideas or thoughts and this is always a common buzzword but you know, hypertrophying the fast switch type two fibers and along with what you were saying can you talk a little bit about uh trying to find some selective hypertrophy for fast fibers power fibers maybe even in light of occlusion as well uh what are your thoughts on that realm of training well i think the you know the big thing about that is is that you know if we can create specific tension right and it's nice again using the moxie monitors to look at that is in the sense that if they are occluding you know they're going to create pretty good tension and you should see this occlusion trend somewhere above 75 percent if they're more slow twitch it might be a little bit higher if they're fast twitch you might see it a little bit sooner on that percent scale per their one rm now it also allows us to say hey is that day good to do that type of work like i mentioned earlier and so when we think about that is that's just like it's all about timing with looking at putting the max strength with what the neural drive is that day. And that's where Moxie can help us out. And that obviously is going to have an effect on maybe fast twitch fiber hypertrophy. Now, the other realms that we can kind of get this is obviously moving fast, eccentric load, um, even fast eccentrics, which is now being being utilized quite a bit, um, where maybe you're, you're weighted and you drop off a box and you stick the landing right? Or some kind of depth jumps or stuff like that. I think the, the probably godfather of all of this, that Warner Gunther video that everybody posts every year, right? Yeah. Uh, and we see it and that's probably, you know, the pinnacle, right? Seeing some big dude be very elastic. Um, and if you really look through his training, you really see this, you really see kind of more ballistic, you see, uh, you know, plyometrics jumps, uh, you know, heavyweight training, um, and, and just a good blend that fit for him. Now, taking that and reproducing that, we can take themes, but I think that's kind of where it's at right now when it comes to, to, to hypertrophying fast twitch fibers. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. 
Yeah, and then there was that research into Werner Gunther and the fiber type and how he was it was something like he was he was originally like really slow twitch or his brother I think his brother was really slow twitch and yeah. he himself had like only 40% fast twitch but the size of those fibers was just like astronomical through his training or something like that. Yeah, it was I think his brother had more and he was oh, he on right. paper him on paper looked less and then through his training he was able to like you said hypertrophy the the fast twitch fibers so yeah, selective hypertrophy, which is, I think, probably like the, what the gold standard or the, the holy grail of coaching right there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You had said something, too, and this made me kind of go back to the length tension, what we were talking about, the partial ranges of motion. But in a sense, would uh, fast twitch development uh, for your sport and what you're looking for along with uh, length tension, the holy grail maybe being uh, creating as much tension as possible in similar joint ranges of motion uh through your special strength and special work type things in the weight room what you're doing yeah i mean i think so yeah i mean i believe so i mean that's what we we want but it's it's also when we, we think of tension i think people think of um like a bracing tension right and i think we want this very kind of fluid tension that relaxes just as fast as it contracts um and i think that's kind of more the holy grail is in the sense of fluidity uh hard high tensions and then right back out to the to really fast relaxation so that's cool it makes me think of all the db hammer and in a sport uh oscillatory isometric exercises uh and and uh i mean that's that's just that storing as much tension as you possibly can and then releasing it as fast as you can and just going through those cycles or in the weight room and uh i always had good success with that stuff i know people who like them a lot as well so it's uh makes me it's always good to kind of uh you know, think about, uh, the concepts that are going into all this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think there's nothing really new, right? It's just, how can we pair up a lot of these ideas that have been done in the past? Um, and you know, from my side, it's how can we gather enough data to know what some of these old training or we call it old, but it's just good training principles can be used and when, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I love it, man. It's all all good stuff. And uh, Aaron, I know one thing through through talking with you, the times that we've chatted uh, over the past uh, year or two, is I always really like um, your knowledge of physiology and what you bring to the table uh, from training in that realm. And I uh, one of my kind of interests recently in in speed training has been um, some of the enzymatic uh, adaptations. I did a uh, I should have a transcript coming out soon with uh, Phil London, uh, Minnesota or uh, former Minnesota track coach who had a kind of four by four dynasty and, and talking about some of his workouts uh, and some of the speed endurance stuff that he had done. And, and uh, basically, I'd just like to ask you a few questions on your thoughts on some of the enzymatic ad- adaptations to speed training and how doing like maybe a longer speed workout uh, that that has a an enzyme a pressure on that aspect of athleticism might help even short speed work or how uh, or what can speed endurance and in other words what can speed endurance offer maximal speed from a muscle enzyme perspective if that's possible yeah i mean i think <clears throat> there's a lot of different adaptations and obviously the enzymatic side is is you know is definitely going to help i think when we think of this as purely anaerobic, all right, or purely uh, aerobic, and realize that they're all kind of working together. And even on the Moxie, and that's where, like, when we, we think of monitoring it, we think of O2s being used immediately, right? And so what's interesting is, is do we know how long speed endurance 
needs to be for each athlete. So if I have a 400 meter athlete that maybe depletes O2 at the, you know, well, 150 meter mark, and then is now going in at 200, say we're doing 250 on the track. Now he has to go 100 meters and he's bottom out. We know um, if we, we, we put up video and put up moxie and we kind of see time scales and we know technique is starting to kind of fall off, right? Then we know he's spent about 100 meters, you know, really using maybe more of an anaerobic compensation to deal with the performance output. And then the, you know, the second side of that would be the, the athlete that maybe doesn't desaturate to the 225 mark, right? And then now he's only using that anaerobic compensation for, for his performance for only 25 meters of that workout. And so we can now see that different load the two athletes are on underneath the same workout, right? And they're going to have, obviously, one athlete's maybe going to have a little bit more upregulation of certain anaerobic enzymes, right? Um, and also aerobic enzymes because since O2 is used, we're going to be using, you know, quite a bit of the enzymatic uh, processes on the aerobic side as well. Um, and then even from, I think from a structural side, what speed endurance can do is even when we look at maintaining the integrity of the cell, when we think of, um, you know, uh, sodium potassium pumps, I think it's interesting in the sense that maybe some of the work we do in speed endurance allows us to do more, high intensive repeatable work later on especially when we think about rounds and stuff like that i think speed endurance allows certain i think sodium potassium pumps to maybe regulate the the cellular environment underneath certain stressors a lot better and i think things like that are 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 always you know important to consider and if we want to get into the details right of uh you know little things we can think of uh you know, MCT transporters or lactate transporters um, that are going to be kicked up with anaerobic type work to try to get out hydrogen from the cell so we can maintain uh, cellular pH. Um, you know, and and I think even that in itself, we can go down rabbit holes of, all right, now how can we get out hydrogen from respiratory, which is also interesting when we think of 400 hurdlers or 400 meter runners in the sense of their, their you know, um, respiratory dynamics you know during their event so yeah it's it's interesting to me that how uh, what's happening on the cellular level and and the, the relationship between yeah speed endurance and speed and how that can all play in i it is fascinating too just how that like say a 250 meter can hit athletes so differently outside of having a moxie monitor is there any like kind of eye test almost to to kind of or things that you've kind of seen like types of athletes who kind of tend to do better with uh, the shorter stuff and, and getting a deprivation, oxygen deprivation sooner. Are there any common traits to those types of athletes? Well, you can probably see some of them after the workout. Right? <laughs> I mean, uh, they're probably laying on the ground and the other ones are walking away. But uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think visually, I think coaches have been doing this for a very, very long time when they, when they dose out speed endurance. Um, and they start dosing it out, whether it's – I mean, depending, I guess, whatever background you come from, long to short or short to long, um, you know, from a short to long perspective, you're looking at, well, do I add 25 more meters? Are they going to maintain form? Um, I think allowing kind of like the biomechanics and um, yeah, really let that maybe drive the bus when you don't have the monitors. And you can see the stress 
when they get done. I mean, we, we've all been with a track coach that likes to do the repeats to the point where all the kids are laying down, right? Um, and so I think just having that idea of can we get in and out and not create any kind of stir, right? And can we get the highest quality work? And I think, you know, most good track coaches have been doing that for a long time just visually, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh that is definitely I think back now to my time in track and field and I was I was always an athlete who could pretty much walk away from anything and then my teammates would be throwing up and and all that type of stuff and uh and I always did pretty well with tempo in my training even as a jumper I just felt like it just helped me out a lot and helped me maybe yeah. get more parasympathetic and it never really hurt me as long as I didn't try to go too hard as long as I kept a, a little more extensive clip and and didn't get too far too far up the speed endurance rabbit hole uh, but it's it's cool to I, I think back to those things. I'm sure that any coach, even track or physical prep or you know how does a football team recover from their wind sprints, and I'm sure this could be applied into pretty much absolutely anything related to conditioning or uh, where that was involved. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I think like the big thing for coaches is just realize that whatever is on the paper, you don't have to do right. Like where uh, if we see these things pop up, if you have four repeats down, I mean. Maybe just two is going to be good that day, right? I think too many times we're beholden to the pencil, uh, and we just need to like you know scrap it half the time. So yeah, the more podcasts and and people, good coaches I talk to, the more I realize that of that reality of like oh you know what's your favorite speed workout? You know how many of these sprints do you do? And and it's all about the adaptations and and uh, like when the athlete you know loses performance or is getting a uh, different types of. Uh, physiological reaction it, it really adds a lot more to how we understand these so that's good stuff man yeah uh cool well hey uh Aaron, i think that's all the time i got for today uh but thank you so much for your answers your time on the show really appreciate always good talking to you man i always learn so much so uh so thank you and uh best of luck with everything you're doing there over in austin yeah well thank you for having me on appreciate it All right, thanks for thanks again for tuning in with us today. I uh, hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Not only talking to Aaron, but putting it together and gathering some of the great quotes and ideas that he has and is continually refining in his work that he is doing down in Austin, Texas. If you enjoyed the episode or the series that we've been doing, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, definitely check out our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com. They have an amazing store full of the best athletic training tools on the market great stuff and on top of that too it's actually uh, cheaper ordering from Christopher than direct uh, with some of the suppliers and just another incentive to uh, go to them for some of your sports and speed training needs we'll see you guys next week with another great guest on the just fly performance podcast have a good one